and I live by the credo, artists are here to disturb the peace, which is a James Baldwin quote. Yes, So yes. I feel like, yeah, let's, let's try to agitate as much as humanly possible. Welcome to The Creator State, where we share stories of social innovation and entrepreneurship for movers, shakers, creators, and changemakers. Each episode will celebrate success and failure, ingenuity, and the endless pursuit of knowledge. In a world that is increasingly visual, John Jennings has a gift for bringing words, people, and stories to life through his images. In this episode, we'll talk with the award-winning illustrator about his work on the graphic novel adaptation of Octavia Butler's Kindred, about pitching projects on the Comic-Con showroom floor, and the ways in which art allows us to explore how the past continues to influence the present. We're recording today's episode at the Center for Ideas and Society at the University of California, Riverside. I'm your host, Kirby Hines. Welcome to The Creator State. My first question is, uh, if someone was to ask you what you do as a creative, what would the answer to that question be? That's a great question. I, know, I, th I think primarily I tell them I'm an artist, you know, because I think the mediums that I, or the media that I use are, are very interdisciplinary and varied, you know? And so I think overall though, I mean, I was born as an artist, so I'll die as an artist, you know? Uh, but I'm a, you know, I do, a, you know, I'm writing and, you know, editing and all kinds of different creative enterprises, but I'm an artist primarily. Okay, good, good. So taking off from the, from the artist mm -hmm. standpoint, what is your medium? So if, you know, if I say, you know, I'm an artist, I, my medium would be uh, playwriting. I, I begin with the word. Mm -hmm. Where do you begin and what is your um, zone of comfort, of most comfort? And that may not be the right word, but mm -hmm. where do you like to land? That's an interesting question as well. I'm so good at this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> thinking like when I talk to my students about media and about illustration in particular, I would say stick to what you know and think, start with what's comfortable. So that's, you know, that's where I start too. I'm an image maker primarily. I'm really interested into the iconicity of language, you know. Uh, I used to teach classes around applied semiotics and image making for graphic designers for many years. Before I started teaching here at UCR, you know, I, I was an you know, art professor, so I taught, you know, design methodology, uh, design history, you know, these types of things about, around the, the, the economy of image. So, so I think primarily, you know, I'm an image maker. But you make images different ways, right? Um, these days, sometimes I say my medium is people, you know? Huh. Because I think about, I do a lot of kind of cultural activism around creating spaces. And so these days I've been doing like a lot of collaborative work and I really love the fact that each person that we, that we meet is like a universe, right? Each person is like an opportunity yeah. to, to make something. And so I think, you know, the mediation of, of, of being a collaborator is something I'm really interesting, I'm interested in right now. So talk to me a little bit about when you when you say the I love the idea of, of my medium are people. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. How do you take people mm -hmm. and convert them into these artistic expressions? Yes. Right. I mean, I think a lot. I mean, I think that and this is something that I've kind of picked up from. Oh, what is the gentleman's name out of out of Chicago? The brother that's doing. He's a potter. The Aster Gates. Ah, yeah, the yeah, Aster yeah, Gates, yeah, yeah. Right. And so I was, and I was thinking about this. I've been, you know, I do some work in the community, uh, putting together ethnocentric comic book conventions too. Yes. Right. Uh, we co-founded uh, co probably the largest Afrocentric 
uh, comic book convention, which is in Harlem at the uh, Schomburg Center. And so after I started doing this, I saw this interview with the Astor Gates and uh, Bell Hooks, you know, mm-hmm. uh, who's one of my, my sheroes. Yes. And I just met her recently, too. She's a, she's a pistol man. Anyway, <laughs> love her. Anyway, so he, they were talking about, he was talking about the, the, the value of the Masters in Fine Arts, you know, like how when you're getting an MFA, it gives you a certain set of skills, you know, a certain set of processes that a lot of times think that you are just applying to that one medium. Like, he's a potter. Like, he's a ceramicist, right? That's, that's, that's the medium that he starts in. But I think right now his medium is the community. His medium is the buildings that he's that he's reshaping. Yeah. Now he's still a potter. He's still doing pottery. He's still making vessels, but he's actually utilizing his skill set he's picked up as a master of fine arts, right? And projecting them onto these older spaces in Chicago and re and rethinking them. And so I started thinking about like, well, I'm kind of doing the same thing. I'm still doing graphic design, right, right. But I'm actually like collaborating with people, creating spaces, making partnerships with people, and designing or reimagining black subjectivity to a certain degree. Because over the last six years, we've actually kind of created a space where over forty thousand or so children have come through the doors and have seen black independent creators making work. You know, comics creators, yeah. and those are forty thousand kids who never have to know what is what it's like to not be central to a narrative, you know? And so, so, wow. Yeah, so, this is, and so that's one thing. So, so when I think about this idea of, of the mediation of people or, or people as media or people as stories, you know what I'm saying? I think about that too. Like, well, I think we're made out of stories, you know? So, you know, if, if anything, you know, I'm an image maker, storyteller, but a, an editor and a, you know, remixer, you know, that kind of thing. I'm really hip cool. as well. So um, I want to do a, a rough transition to Kindred. Mm-hmm. Why Kindred? What's the thing? So, so Beacon Press, they have the rights to publish her prose work, right? Okay. And so 2008, 2009 or so, they put out a call for teams to do a graphic novelization of Kindred. This is years ago. Black and white, fewer pages. Mm. Um, I was still at University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign teaching still. And um, this was around, let me see, it was around spring break. And my friend Damian Duffy, who I did the who I did the adaptation with, right. he finds this call at the last minute. And he's like, dude, they are doing a graphic novelization of Kendrick, or they want to do it. We have to throw a hat into the ring, don't we? And wow. I was like, yeah. But here's the thing. So just like now, I'm always traveling around doing talks and you know my thing. So even over spring break, I had three speaking engagements in three parts of the country, right? And so we decided to go for it. And so what happens is Damien cobbles together you know, a pitch and puts together like a really quick adaptation of, of the first scenes. Uh-huh. And I was on, I was literally like jumping around from like city to city. So what I was doing was drawing analog images, right, uh, large, yeah, sending them back to Champagne uh, via FedEx whenever I hit a, a new city. And then Damien put together like the pages wow. in Photoshop. Wow. And we were super excited about it and we thought it was great and we totally failed. <laughs> totally didn't. We totally <laughs> crashed and burned, and we were so exhausted. And I, I still did, you know, I did fine at my talks, whatever. And we were like, okay, well, we we failed, but at least we tried, yeah, right? Yeah. And then, um, and so we were excited that you know this book was going to get made. And then, lo and behold, like a few years later, um, we're doing a talk about another book at San Diego Comic Con, and we had three other projects we want to pitch. So I was like, so Damien's in the air; he's on his way to San Diego. Yeah. I'm already on the floor. And I have my trusty iPad, and I'm showing, you know, images to people. 
And I walk up to Abrams Comic Arts and I meet Sheila Keenan, who was the, at the time she was senior editor at Abrams Comic Arts. And I was like, yeah, so here's some things I'm working on. You know, what do you think? And she's like, love your work. I think you'd be perfect for this project I'm trying to acquire. Have you ever heard of Octavia E. Butler? And I was like, why, yes, I have. <laughs> I actually, yes, she's wonderful. She's a wonderful uh, creator. And she's like, well, we, and what book are you trying to do? And she said, hey, I'm trying to do Kindred. I'm, well, I'm like, wait, what? And then first, I'm like, wait a minute, what about the other graphic novel? And so what ends up happening is five months later, we're signing a contract to do Kindred with Abrams Comic Arts. So it wasn't necessarily like we chose Kindred, it's like Kindred chose yeah. us. You yeah. know, so, so it kind of circles back around to us, you know, that kind of thing. And, and um, I, think, I think it's one of her most beloved narratives because, because of the fact that it touches on so many different subjects. It's kind of like uh, alternative history story. Right, it's, right. It's, it's definitely situated in like sociology, women and gender studies, American history, science fiction, horror. I mean, it's, it, it just touches on so many different things. So that's, that's why Kindred. You okay. Know, we wouldn't want to like say, hey, we're going to go do Kindred. It's like, no, we're like, we want, I was actually trying to sell other projects. <laughs> yeah. Kindred came to you. Kindred came to us, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. um, I, want, I want to talk a little bit about the choices that you made mm-hmm. um, within uh, Kindred. J- just talk a little bit about how those choices were influenced by, clearly, by the novel itself, mm-hmm. but also by your own experiences and your own visual uh, desires as far as storytelling. Okay, okay. Um, first of all, it's like, you know, comics are a medium all to, uh, or you can say, actually, properly, comics is a medium all to itself. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. weird, but it's, comics is. And so, you know, they're an amalgam of, it's an amalgam of, you know, word and image, but it's it's sequential in nature. So, so it's almost like there's a theatrical aspect to it, too, because you yes. are all the characters, you know. Yes. I like to imagine, like, you know, if you're thinking about it, like, the panels are, like, very similar to seeing a play or you're doing all the costume design and stuff like that. Yes. You know, it's, it's a really interesting enterprise and it's, it's a very exacting process. You want to get across the, the themes of the, of the, of the book as, right, as, right. as concisely as possible. This is a very important book to people. It's a very important book to us. Her fans are rabid and, and Beyonce behind. Like, I'm like the, like, the sisters that are really into Octavia Butler. It's like, you need to get this right. Yeah, so yeah. it's a lot of pressure. And at first we wanted to do something that was more mimetic, more, more, more realistic, so uh-huh. to speak. But then we was thinking, like, how do you get across the affect of slavery, you know, and the horrors of these things through, you know, the, the illustrations? Comics are very uh, symbolic yeah. in nature. And so what I started thinking about was other artists throughout history who utilized illustration to talk about trauma. Hmm. So I started looking at a lot of people around the German Expressionist era, and particularly, I centered a lot around people like Franz Masriel, uh, Lind Ward, uh, people like uh, Kathy Colwitz in particular, okay. who would beautifully do these extremely painful images around, you know, what was happening in concentration camps and during like the Second World War. So I was trying to like embody those types of feelings. You know, the, the images have to be abstract enough that you can project yourself into them, because. Like like Butler talked about, she she had she pulled back on uh, on the, the horrors of slavery. I really don't think we've actually seen a depiction of what slavery was really like. Even if you look at something like Twelve Years a Slave, I thought it was actually pretty tame. Yeah. You know, in comparison to the grotesque horrors of of slavery. Right. Well, it's um, ironic that you. I just mm-hmm. want to jump in that you mm-hmm. say she uh, Butler said she pulled back because one of the 
most compelling and powerful descriptions of, of what it was like to be whipped mm -hmm. is, is in, I, I find in Kendra. That the whipping scene that is the one with, is where Dana is in the, in the bushes hiding? Yes. Yes. And that's an actually, like, when I was drawing, that's, that's an extremely, that was one of the pieces that we, that we struggled with, too, yeah. because how do you get across? And I think it comes across in the, in the graphic novel, too. But while I was making the book, I actually would, I was weeping onto original art you know, yeah. pages, this is, which yes. is very difficult to cry onto your art and try to, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's like, oh yes. It's very painful. And, yeah. and so much, in fact, that I saved that part of the book for later to color because, see, even people don't realize is that you're embodying all these different types of emotions when you're trying to give form. Absolutely. To, you know, yeah. so you start from the sketch, right? Awesome. So we had to sketch out the entire book first to figure out what it's going to look like. The entire book has to be broken down into panels, sketched out. Then you draw it, so you're giving it more form. Then you ink it, you know, giving it more right. form. Then you color it, you know. So, so you, you're revisiting that space. Over and over and over, over again. And over. It's, a, it's a re traumatization of it. So actually, and this is, don't tell anybody, um, I have not actually read the entire graphic novel because of that. I've read it in pieces, like in, 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 in shards, you know, and, and it, was a, it was a project I had to get through. I've read the, the book many times, you know, and listened to it many times. I would actually listen to the the audiobook while I was drawing. So I was yeah. up to my eyeballs in slavery. We were enslaved by the book. Wow. You know what I'm wow. saying? So it's like, it was an experience, you know. But I read also somewhere where you talked about this idea of momentary hope. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to ask you, transitioning a little bit out of, out of this traumatic place, how important is momentary hope for you and your work? Mm -hmm. And how do you assure that it exists in work that may be otherwise very traumatic, very powerful, um, very dark. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I do like a lot of work around, you know, what I call the ethnogothic. You know, that's my yes. my little my little terminology there. Yes, I was going to ask you about the term. Tell me yeah, about. Well, here's the thing. So, so Kindred, they, they people keep placing it into like this this term Afrofuturism, which is which has been experiencing kind of a resurgence of, over the last decade, actually. Um, people are just, the mainstream is just kind of stumble onto it. Like, Wait, what is Afrofuturism? What does that mean? <laughs> yeah. And uh, we've been dealing with the, this for a long time as far as like the black speculative space, right? Yeah. I, I guess what I started thinking about was like, okay, well, do you ignore traditional tropes around narratives? You know what I'm saying? So it's like, so Kindred actually like resonates more with a gothic narrative than it does with a, any kind of futuristic or sci-fi narrative, you know? So for instance, uh, there's body horror, there's these like, um, weird ancestral tensions around the present and the past and the future. There's the doppelganger, like like Alice right. is her doppelganger. Um, there's this kind of twisted romance story that's in it as well. I mean, it actually has all these trappings of the Gothic. And in fact, you know, Butler talks about it as a grim fantasy. And another thing too is that there's this magical supernatural aspect of it. It's almost like Dana is haunting her own past, you know. Wow. It's not like she jumps in a TARDIS or like a DeLorean and just takes off and says, I'm going to go do a time trip. It's not H.G. Wells. Right, you know, right. There is a, a, a inexplicable, magical, haunted, uncanny connection to the past that draws her inexplicably to the past. You know? And that's what's so powerful about Kindred is that it talks about the, 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 the idea of awe you know, or like yeah. cosmic um, unmaking of people through this weird machination, this, this, this technology called race or racism or whatever you want to call it, right. it's unnatural. That's what happens with Kendra. She's talking about how this actually still affects us today. And that's why it resonates with us today, because we could see that we really have, we don't want to deal with those particular types of, 
connections to racism in America, you know? And um, as far as like hope goes, I mean, I think as, an, as someone who is a teacher, um, I, would, I cannot do what I do without hope, you know? It, yeah. it doesn't function, yeah. you know, because you're really trying to to deal with uh, future generations, and you're thinking a lot about, okay, well, what have I learned in my, you know, few decades on the planet, and how can I impart that to future generations? That's the thing. When I look out into the, and my students, I'm like, okay, what? Well, I need to actually like get across this notion of hope because that's what we're working for, the future, you know. Yeah. And I, you know, and I saw, and, and even in, in Butler's work, she's talking about. You know, particularly stuff in like the Parables series, for instance. She is, it's a very dark narrative. It, it outhungers the hungers, Hunger Games. But at the end of the day, she wants, like the main character wants to save existence. You know, yes. you have to have that as part. I mean, she creates a religion. Yes. <laughs> you know, so so you have to have that as part of the narrative. Even, even when you're like, as Toni Morrison calls it, playing in the dark, you know, which for some reason I have an affinity for. I have an affinity for dealing with these darker subjects, giving them shape. But I think that's how you release that, so you can get to that Afro future. You got to work through that stuff, you know. You have to work through it, and um, you give it a form, you give it a name, you know what it is, then you can get rid of it. It's almost like you know the first thing, uh, you know, it's in magic. You know, it's like Wampusdilskin. Yeah, you said yeah. my name, oh, yeah, you got power yeah. over me now. You know that kind of thing, right? The fact that Adam named all the animals—that's powerful, right? I mean, so so the idea of naming and 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 claiming and actually like giving something a reified form. You do that through the, the, these magical, darker spaces, you know, or, or supernatural things that people are afraid of, you know, that kind of thing. Now, let's get into the creator's state of mind. In each episode, we ask our guests to share what's been on their minds, something they can't stop thinking about, a new challenge they're facing, or what's inspired them into action recently. We call it the creator state of mind. What is messing with you right now mm. as far as jumping into your creative space and telling you maybe it wants you to mess with it mm-hmm. in the near future? That's funny because, you know, whatever you mess with, it messes with you. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's un- interesting because I think that this notion of unpacking those horrors are something that, that actually I'm kind of obsessed with, honestly. Yeah, yeah. yeah because what's happened is... I see how useful it is, the utility of it, and how scared people are to talk about these things. Huh. And I'm like, I'm not really scared of that stuff. And I think it's because I came up in Mississippi where racism is as natural as breathing, you know? Yeah. And you are haunted metaphorically by Emmett Till's spirit, you know, on a day-to-day basis. And you, you get really resilient when it comes to, you know, these types of spaces, right? And I see it, you yeah. know, and I, and I feel it. So I'm like, okay, well, I actually have the proper mixture of of weird things happening, <laughs> you know, or, or she's very fortunate weird things happen. Like, like you know, and, and I think that's something I want to deal with because I was like, okay, we're talking about these future spaces, but we haven't really dealt with the baggage of the past yet. Huh. It's like the Erica Badu song, Bag Lady. Yes. That's how I look yeah, at yeah, these yeah. dark, that's why I look at Kindred. It's like, she's like, we got to still deal with this baggage before we get to the Afro future. Yeah. What you talking about? I was going to ask you about your mother because there's a cool thing that I saw speaking about you and your mother watching horror movies mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. First of all, I want to learn a little bit about these conversations you would have with her about what scared you and why, which is such yeah. a is such a great way to examine mm-hmm. you know these these films which which 
clearly, you know, have translated into present day questions that you must ask yourself when you're creating something. Right. It was, it was really cool. Like my mom uh, and my grandmother actually took to a certain degree. Um, you know, I grew up, like I said, you know, black, male and poor in Mississippi. Yeah. <laughs> Post-civil rights era. You wow. know, I was born in 1970. You know, my, my mom went to Alcorn State University. So okay. she, she was a literature major and um, she had like a lot of books around. And so I, I started reading and thinking at a super early age. You yeah. know, I was, but I was off in the cut. I was like, I was like in the sticks, you know. Um, Florida, Mississippi is already like an agrarian space, but I was in the most agrarian <laughs> of that space. I, I just had my imagination, and yeah. my mom was my best friend, you know, when I saw her, because she was usually working like a couple jobs to, you know, put food on the table. My grandparents were, you know, my main caretakers. My grandfather was like my superhero, you know. And so my grandmother was full of like these, what I thought was superstitions, but in retrospect were probably belief structures that came from conjure culture or root work, yeah, yeah. something like that. She probably was a practitioner, I just didn't know it. So she was always talking about haints and things of that nature. And my mom was always into science fiction, fantasy. She gave me my first superhero comics, which became <laughs> an obsession. Wow, and this is in the 70s. This is yeah, 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 so she was buying me. Like she bought me Thor and Spider-Man wow. and stuff like that. She said, well, my kid's in art and you know he reads a lot, so he might like these. You know? And then you know, I got more comics and stuff. And so, um, you know, we would watch these. She was always in the scary movies and stuff. Like, I started reading Stephen King too early, uh-huh. you know, <laughs> Edgar Allan Poe, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. I was really into these darker subjects, and I'm surrounded. I'm in a forest, essentially, <laughs> right, right. With, a, with a grandmother talking about spooks and haints and stuff. You know, so these these things actually started affecting yeah. me really earlier. And so we would act, there was this, these they would show these old school like horror movies Friday nights on like our ABC affiliate. Okay. On Friday nights, and it even had like a host, like one of those like they would dress up like yeah, yeah. Uh, Elvira style host. Oh yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. We actually had I forgot what his name was, but anyway, so he would do these, you know, these these second run horror movies right. and stuff, mm-hmm. and we'd stay up together and watch them and talk about, you know, why was that scary or what did you think about the guy with that one eye or you know <laughs> those types yeah. of things. And so yeah, she let me watch a lot of probably stuff that <laughs> that I probably shouldn't. But she probably was scared too. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. But I, I became, but I liked it, you know. And um, those are some. I think in some ways, like maybe when I think about horror, I think about you know the narrative of you know the comfort of talking to your mom about this stuff. Wow. You know, I think it's a signifier for things that comfort me. You know? So your point of reference. So horror is it's a maternal. point of comfort. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. That's, <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, yeah, it is. It is. It is. Horror is about us talking about the world, things that we don't want to deal with, you know, things that we are totally afraid. Not just visceral horror, like, oh, I, you know, one thing everybody's totally terrified is probably of, like, going blind, right, that, or, or having a, a, a losing a limb or something like that. You know, it's, it's terrifying because it's, it's dealing with physical, like, visceral horror, but there's also these notions of dread yeah. that are very difficult to articulate, you know, the thing that gets you in the middle of your stomach, like, I don't want to deal with that, yeah, you know. Yeah. And my wife is totally terrified of centipedes, you know. She's like, that's too many legs for anything to have. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so it's like, you know. Look, um, at least she has a thought out process well, as yeah, to what yeah, the exactly. dilemma her, her is. is. Actually, she doesn't have a logical fear. So I was like, yeah, centipedes, they messed up. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so, anyway so, so, so a lot of times I'm talking about like, well, one thing about how, how I, like how do you talk about racism as a horror story, right? Because uh, that's the only thing I think you can talk about it as from a black perspective. So one of the stories I'm working on right now, Box of Bones, which is um, kind of like Afrocentric Hellraiser. You know? oh. Yeah, it's about these spirits that live in this box that, t- that, that punish people that hurt black people throughout the diaspora. And the main character is this black woman named, named uh, 
Lindsay Ford, who is you know working on her PhD at Berkeley, and she huh. comes across these stories about this box, and then she slowly realizes that they're not stories, you know, and they're real, and that she's connected to these stories in some way. And so these these spirits, I wanted they're based off of black stereotypes. Nice. So what I did is I took stereotypes, which are already monstrous and limiting and terrible already, and pushed them to spaces that spooked me out. Wow. Like I have this one character called the Burden, that is essentially like one of those. It's like you ever seen those the, the cotton sacks that slaves would, oh, yeah. would drag by. Yeah. So imagine that filled with like arms and legs of slaves, and it inches around. It takes more legs and arms into it. It's about the the utilitarian nature, the dehumanization of like black people during slavery. So that's so you think about like okay, well, what does that look like? And so these particular forms. You know, I'm like, okay, well, how do I how do I make those real? So, so essentially, Box of Bones is about the Florida Evans moment when she smashes that bowl on the in good times on the yes, floor. She says, yes. "Damn, damn it!" You know, how do you take that feeling of loss and suffering? In fact, one of the characters is called the suffering, and put it into a space. You know, how do you explain that? You know, wow, yeah, yeah. And so that's and so art gives us the the language the visual language to try to like deal with those issues. That's terrifying. Okay, so John, I understand that you are teaching a course here at UCR um, on Get Out, mm -hmm. uh, the film. I just want to ask you, what led you to deciding to teach a course on, on this, this film? Mm -hmm. um, and what have you discovered or where has it led the class itself in your exploration of both the themes of the film itself, mm -hmm. but also themes that are embedded in your work? Okay. Well, here's the thing. So, so when I was still at UB, when I was still teaching at University of Buffalo, yeah. when I was still teaching there, I was teaching in graphic design, and I taught a class that I created called Applied Semiotics, right? So I was thinking about the study of images and how you apply them through like a graphic design lens, right? I always changed the, uh, the theme, yeah. right? So one year we did this course called The Medium is the Monster. And so we was thinking about like monstrosity and the grotesque as, and different aspects of it. So we talked about things about otherness, about you know the monster being these internal fears. We talked about like the demonization of female sexuality as being monstrous. It was like these really interesting conversations, and we showed these films, and we had, it was almost like a film series slash class. And they did an art show. I could send you guys some of the wow. images from it. Nice. So I had been thinking about like, well, how do we talk about these things, you know, explicitly in a course like that? And so I always want. I'm always a, I'm a huge film buff. I own thousands of films, and um, and I study intently how narrative you know works its way out sequentially so I'm already thinking about these things so I go to see Get Out right uh, at the time though I was still at Harvard you know and I was because uh, it came out like November so I had just started really yeah. my fellowship <sighs> we were blown away by the story it's, it almost felt like Jordan was inside my head I was wow. like these are things that I think about all the time oh my god this dude okay for instance like when he picks out cotton uh -huh. and puts it into his ear to protect himself uh -huh. That's what I'm talking about. You, we've, our black people have survived in this country by utilizing things that were destroyed, that was that were created to destroy us, right. remixing them through our through our, our language and our art and our dance and everything, and using art as a as a system of resistance. And that's what he was showing. He was like, "You taking things that are supposed to right. destroy you, and you and you make it into a, a, a liberation technology." Yeah. That's yeah. that. I was like, I was I was I was like, oh my god, this is exactly what we're talking <laughs> about. So me and my wife went to we went to eat afterwards, uh, right around the corner from the, the, the movie theater, and we, I was like, man, I, I can't stop thinking about this film. You know, I think I, I see so many layers to it. I see it resonating in things I'm already dealing with. I went back to my office, and I in two hours I had written a syllabus. Wow. I wrote a syllabus, 
Um, one of the things about the sunken place is so fascinating is that race and space have always been conflated in our country. The sunken place is the red line south side of Chicago. Yeah. I come from the sunken place. Mississippi is a sunken place. Huh. You know, the other side of the tracks. I'm in a sketchy neighborhood. Those are sunken places. Those are uh, the prison industrial complex is a sunken place. You know, these are race and space have always been connected. You know, wow. throughout our country's history. So when he when he gives it this like designated name, it becomes a signifier for all of those racialized spaces to me. You know, and you have conversations about those things. And I was like, I want to teach a course on this. Oh, but I couldn't because I was still at Harvard. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I actually could, didn't get a chance to actually teach it yeah. until, until uh, this past quarter. You yeah. know? And so the students actually had to do a final project that was a critical making project and a written project about how they would imagine what the sunken place would look like as a cartographic representation as a wow. mapping system. Because if you got into the sunken place, you gotta be able to get out of it, Yes. right? So how do you help this brother get out? How do you get Chris out of the sunken place? And so students just went wild. They actually did these really interesting mapping images. And this is not an art class, but, uh, but we, we do some critical making work in MCS. And I was like, well, let's, let's work through this as a visual signifier. Like, how do you talk about the visual manifestation of the sunken place? What does it represent to you? Yeah. You know, but we're talking about how horror uh, has always been a space of catharsis for black people, you know, or a space where we can actually play around with these things. Um, I thought talked about restorative justice politics through horror. Uh -huh. I talked about like you know the mis misrepresentation of black uh, or African diasporic religion and horror, like places like stories like Angel Heart, for instance. You know, right. where, where, where voodoo is the devil. You know that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, Candy. We talked. I taught Candyman. Um, and these notions of like the, you know, how it talks about anti-miscegenation and right. things of that nature. Right. We had some really, really amazing conversations about, you know, these things. It was, it's, it's honestly been one of my favorite experiences. I think the students loved it, you know, and it's one of the courses, it was a special topics course, but it's one of the classes that I want to actually get on the books. So it's Afrofuturism and the visual cultures of horror. Wow. And Get Out was a central yeah. uh, narrative. And so I'm friends with Erica Alexander, who's in, the, who's in the movie, and she Skyped into the course and it was great. You know, wow. uh, I was trying to get Peel to come, but that's around the Oscar rush, so it was just a timing thing. So we actually, but I think that in the future, I hope that he will come and, and do a, a talk with us, you know. It is always a valuable learning opportunity to take time to reflect. At the end of each interview, we like to ask our guests this. In hindsight, what is something you wish you would have known when you were starting out? that your biggest competition is going to be, you know, probably just the amount of time you have. Don't wow. squander your time, you know. Um, it's one of the, it is, I always tell my students, like, one of the biggest lies ever told to us that time is equal to money. Huh. Time is timeless. Time is time. Money is money. Money is worthless. Time is all you have, you know. And so what are you going to do with that, that time when you're here on this planet, in wow. this particular plane of existence? The other thing that I would tell my younger self is, don't compare yourself to other people. You know, one of the things actually, I stopped drawing comics for a while. I hate, I, it's embarrassing for me to say that. Huh. I always wanted to be a comic book artist, but I was like, well, I don't draw like Jim Lee, or I don't draw like, you know, Frank Miller, wow. right? No, you need to actually learn how to draw like John Jennings. You know what I'm saying? Wow. That's the thing. And so uh, once I picked it back up again, I realized like, you know what? The styles and the decision making, the style is basically a system of decisions that you make, you know? So that's, that's what it is, you know, it's just, you know, you're making a system of decisions for a particular reason um, that is very personal to you, and it comes out as a form, you know. 
Um, and so the forms that I make, I make for particular reasons, you know, and, and, and they're just in their mind. You know, wow. they don't belong to Frank Miller. I might be influenced by Frank Miller or, or Dennis Cowan or, 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 you know, Lynn Ward or whoever, whoever. but I've, I remix those through the medium that is John, you know, and, I, and that's what comes out. I wish I could tell myself that. I wouldn't, I'd be a better artist now. Wow. Wow, that's cool. That's cool. Uh, listen, this has been, this is, this has been exceptionally uh, fun. Yeah. And um, we should do it more. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll do it again. <laughs> uh, this is, you know, this is the beginning. I just want to say thank you again, oh, man, yeah. for making the time. Thank you. And um, we're done. Join us for our next episode when we speak with wedding stylist Heidi Marie Garrett Villa about the way social media influences the creative process and how to turn competitors into a supportive community. Thanks for listening. Find behind the scenes video and more information about our guests at creatorstate.com. Write us at creatorstate at ucr.edu or find us on Twitter and Facebook at The Creator State. There's a team creating this podcast. Help us out by subscribing on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen. And while you're there, leave us a review. Our producer for the show is Jennifer Merritt, with video, audio, and editing by Christy Zwicky, Christina Rodriguez, David Silos, Chan Moon, and Rosemarie Kwong. Digital strategy by Kelly McGrail. And design by Chrissy Danforth, Denise Wolf, Brad Rowe, and creative director Luis Sanz. This show is brought to you by the University of California, Riverside. I'm your host, Rekirby Hines. Thank you for joining us in the creator state. Man, what did, why did we decide to do this? Is, I don't uh, know. I don't is, think, do is, we have to, you tell, I don't know why we yeah. decided to do anything. I mean, it's like, huh. again, I think that you come out with that particular predilection that, that your function is to be an artist. Yeah. I can't do, I would be doing what I'm doing anyway. Yes, yes. I'm just fortunate enough that, been, you know, that I've fallen into a space where I can support myself and yeah. my wife, you know, and maybe buy a couple comic books from time to time. <laughs>